Hey, I am back. I didn't know if I would be back or when I would be back, but I am back. Happy Cinco de Mayo, um, for what it's worth. Definitely uh, a far cry from what we're used to, obviously. Here in Denver, um, we would expect there to be major revelry, city center park, um, or I'm sorry, civic center park would be... Um, uh, basically closed to drivers so that people could walk around in revelry and enjoy um, all sorts of food and drink and that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, it would be uh, pretty wild times, if, although today's Tuesday. So if not Taco Tuesday, it would, certainly would have taken place over the weekend, this sort of revelry. But um, I gotta tell you, being here... Um, just off of one of the biggest streets in Denver, one of the busiest streets in Denver, one of the main drags, and basically not seeing many cars driving by at all hours of the day, not just not just during rush hour, or not just during the regular days, but during rush hour even, and, uh, well, at any time. Having there be not very many cars, and I can actually open up the windows and not be too concerned about too many cars driving by or drag racing, uh, this is a wild situation. Uh, certainly nothing that I've experienced. The, the change from just, you know, this time last year when, you know, things were warming up and people would be driving like crazy and tons of traffic. Um, the difference between last year and this year is just uh, astounding. So, uh, much quieter here. It almost feels like a suburban street I'm living on instead of right off of one of the busiest streets in all of Denver, typically. So, that's how that goes here. Incidentally, this is, at least for the time being, a fairly disjointed podcast. This is only my second episode, so to speak, my second little blurb. Who knows how this is going to develop, but for right now, I'm just putting stuff out there just for the fun of it. So, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. So let's talk David Bowie, of all people, for a little while. Uh, growing up, he was never really high on my list of favorite performers or he was you know I was part of the MTV generation grew up in the 80s I'm a child of the 80s um proud Gen Xer that sort of thing so you get an idea about where I'm coming from so I actually missed his 1970s heyday um his creative heyday uh, he was always you know kind of on the periphery of my little bubble um until he released Let's Dance and uh, came up with some really cool music, which I thought was really great David Bowie until years later I realized, oh, well, he's actually a lot more creative and usually less straightforward than that. Um, and the reason that album was so great, um, or at least so popular, had a lot to do with Nile Rodgers, who was, as you know, one of the members of Chic, and that was a an awesome band and so Niall basically took his pop and dance prowess and applied it to David Bowie and came up with a good album and some awesome singles off of it um, 
anyhow, uh, I never really thought much of him after that. Uh, let me let me correct myself. I never, and I mean that literally. I never really he he never entered my mind too much as a person to follow, a, a person whose albums to get and listen to and enjoy. Um, but as time has gone on, I've no, um, you know known him more as someone who uh, whose albums have been very critically acclaimed, very admired. He's, you know, I'll bring up the typical, yes, he's a chameleon, da-da-da, the ultimate pop chameleon. Um, and, uh, of course, his death brought about a whole bunch of new uh, chances for us to re-examine his work and take a look and see what it was all about. And I was even late on that one as well. He died, and then I think a couple years after that, I was like, "Yeah, let's let's get into him. Let's see what he's all about." Um, so I downloaded uh, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, and uh, major props to him for a wacky album title, by the way. <laughs> Back in a day when you know things were basically like. You know, first album, Meet the Beatles. Second album, More from the Beatles. Or, you know, things along those lines. All of a sudden, here he comes along with this Fiona Apple-worthy title. <laughs> and, okay. And I listened to it, and some songs, eh. Some songs I really enjoyed. And uh, so I started getting into him a little bit more. Uh, got Hunky Dory, which, uh, honestly, I think now I like even more than Ziggy. Uh, I do really, really enjoy Ziggy, uh, but the more I listen to Hunky Dory, I really dig that one even more. And I got Aladdin Sane, which is good. Uh, popular opinion is that it is a collection of really, really, really great songs that don't necessarily gel well together, and I would have to second that opinion. That definitely is um, a worthy consideration if there is ever an argument that it is good to have a, an overriding vision overseeing whatever album you're coming out with. Aladdin Sane is a good example of what happens when you don't necessarily have that and instead just decide to come up with a whole bunch of really random music and put it all out there and <laughs> see what happens. So, great album, not the best. Ziggy's better, Hunky Dory's better. And now you know what I have as far as my albums. I haven't heard anything else yet. So anyhow, I was thinking probably over the past week or so, since uh, I suddenly have more time on my hands, like everyone else does, uh, I've been sitting at the piano more and planking around and coming up with some really good tunes, or not coming up with tunes, but listening to songs that I think would be fun to play on the piano. And so, Lady Stardust, yeah, I'm sorry, Lady Stardust came to mind. And so I tried to, uh, tried to plank it out, came up with the chords pretty easily, and was trying to figure out if I should, uh, I, wa I wanted to challenge myself, so I didn't want to just get the uh, the sheet music. I wanted to see if I could uh, trans transcribe it, 
actually, um, which didn't work out since I haven't I haven't transcribed anything onto sheet music since God uh, high school, <laughs> and here I am in my mid forties. So that didn't obviously take. But at least what I could do is write down the chords for the song and go from there. And as it turns out, that's what you do with Lady Stardust. I mean, basically, it sounds like David just took the took these uh took some chords strung them together um and added flourishes here and there and glissandi and arpeggios and that sort of thing um while the rest of the band kind of shouldered on along with him as he sang and really it's a fairly simple song Fairly simple. The chord progressions are a bit tricky here and there. Um, and then there are some little surprises, like the fact that the last line of each of the verse has the exact same chord progression as the first two lines of the chorus. So in essence, you're getting these three lines in a verse and a chorus that are, you know, simul not simultaneous, but consecutively the same. Um, even though one is a verse and the other two is a chorus. And I think what's really brilliant about Bowie is that he was able to make it so that it sounds like you're just ending the verse and then you're getting into the chorus. And it doesn't sound like you're repeating it. It sounds new. It sounds fresh. And I think that's really, really cool. Um, but last night, in a peak of having difficulty sleeping... I um, I had a vision in my mind. The third line of the chorus, um, I can't remember the lyrics to it right off the top, but it basically, the third line of the chorus starts off on an E minor chord and then goes on from there. And that last chord of the third line uh, where he, at least on the first chorus, soars way up high to a high B, and his voice just soars. It's beautiful. It's really neat um, part. I, that particular chord, I've had the hardest time trying to figure out. I put down, I wrote down, C-sharp minor 7, question mark. And then I also put in parentheses, tacit. Question mark because ever, however I tried to do that chord, I, it could never really flow. It didn't seem quite right, especially since the very next chord, uh, the first chord of the final, uh, the final line of the chorus, is an A major chord, and the last chord. There's very little difference between the the C sharp minor seven and then the A. It almost sounds like there's, you know, there's there's not enough drama between the two. And then I realized last night, I think that might be kind of what he was going for. Or if not, he improvised and then said, you know, let's just leave it spare. Let's just leave it spare. Maybe I don't play a chord or we just uh, let my voice soar up high to this B that is really... Raises the tension of the song for a bit. And there's the apex of the song. And then we'll come back down to the A major chord and move on from there. 
last night, I kind of felt like when he soared up to that high B, it I had the vision in my mind of him being like a, uh, I don't know, um, X Games <laughs> biker or something like that, where he just soars up in the air with his bike, lets go of the bike, or only has one hand on the bike, and he's flipping, and he's way up there, and you know, ostensibly in no control at all, out of control, and he could just come crashing down and crash and burn and maybe kill himself or be just severely injured upon coming back down to terra firm. But no, he does this and it comes down beautifully. And him soaring up there, just like, with no support at all, and then coming back down. That is beautiful. And uh, I uh, I don't know, that vision came to me many times last night. I was in, I think, a little bit of a phantasmagoria. You know how when you get sick, and, because I was kind of sick last night, you know how when you get sick, and your mind starts kind of playing tricks on you, and you start imagining really weird things, and you can't stop them, and uh, you get repetitive, visions going through your mind that just are really disturbing. That's kind of what happened last night, except this one was not particularly disturbing. I found it very beautiful. So, anyhow, David Bowie, Lady Stardust, the first song on the second song, on the second side of the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Beautiful little pop ditty, great chord progressions, great melody. Um, and some say one of his signature pieces, and I think it's beautiful. Obviously, while I'm recording on this, I can't get access to it or the rights to this song, but if you get a chance, listen to Lady Stardust. It's a beautiful song, and uh, definitely one of my favorites, both to listen to, both to try to sing, well, both, all, to listen to, to sing along with, and to plunk out on the piano. So, give it a listen. And now, a post from Heather Cox Richardson, dated May 4th, 2020. The big news today is that there has been another leak from the White House, and this one is colossal. The New York Times obtained a document suggesting that the administration has misrepresented the numbers of American deaths expected from this pandemic by pushing an artificially low estimate for close to a month. Modeling by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, now projects 200,000 new coronavirus cases a day by the end of the month. We currently have about 25,000 new cases a day. And by June 1st, about 3,000 deaths every day from COVID-19. Trump revised estimates of the dead upward to 100,000 yesterday, but the new document suggests even those are optimistic. The White House pushed back against the leak saying that the document had not been vetted or presented to the coronavirus task force. We also learned today that the new White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, 
must give his express approval for members of the Coronavirus Task Force or their aides to appear before Congress this month. So it certainly looks as though we will not be hearing an explanation of the discrepancy between Trump's projections and this document anytime soon. Historians are prophets of the past, not the future, and I am completely unqualified to assess this released model. But I am indeed qualified to note the political importance of the fact that the administration appears to have seriously downplayed its own estimates of the projected death toll from this pandemic. As Andrew Slavitt, acting administrator for Medicare and Medicaid under President Barack Obama explained, Trump's team told him to expect 100,000 to 250,000 dead. Horrific numbers. Numbers from which Americans would recoil. But he revised that number downward based on a model that assumed, for example, that states without social distancing would not have outbreaks. The number he offered was around 60,000 a number that convinced his supporters that COVID-19 was no more serious than a bad flu and that Democrats were exaggerating the danger for political gain. That was enough to start a push to reopen states. While there is a lot of talk about Trump wanting to reopen the states to repair the economy, it's hard to see how that can happen if the pandemic continues unabated or even gets worse. Others have suggested that the president might simply live so entirely in the moment he cannot adequately assess cause and effect. He wants the economy to get better, so he is trying to will that into reality despite the death toll. But I wonder, and I'm really only wondering tonight, because it's already two o'clock and I am too tired to start chasing down the speeches and statistics I would need to make this an assertion. If what is really driving this mad push, funded as we know it is by right-wing political groups, is a frantic determination to make sure the country does not turn again now in the midst of this pandemic to a government that regulates business and provides a basic social safety net a government like the one we created during the Great Depression. I mean, if the protesters really wanted to protect workers, wouldn't they be demanding laws that replaced lost wages? Other developed countries have passed exactly those sorts of measures, putting their economies into a holding pattern as the pandemic passes. But the Trump administration has focused largely on protecting those at the top of the economy. Reopening states will also keep us from expanding unemployment programs, since they will keep workers from being able to claim unemployment benefits. They must work or starve, as opponents of welfare legislation used to put it. And of course, people are waiting too long to get Medicare, medical care for COVID-19 and thus are spreading it, not simply because we have insufficient tests, but also because they have no health care insurance for treatment anyway. It's not a pandemic, said a speaker at a rally at the Boston State House today, demanding that Republican Governor Charlie Baker reopen the state. The reason why they're doing this 
to turn the United States of America into the United Socialist States of America. This is ridiculous, of course, but it sounded very much like what Republicans said in the 1930s as they insisted first that there wasn't a depression and then that if there was a depression, it was the job of the destitute states to fix it because federal government intervention in the economy was socialism. Indeed, it sounded so much like Republican speeches from the 1930s that it instantly brought to mind Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech when he accepted the Democratic nomination for president in 1932. Out of every crisis, every tribulation, every disaster, mankind rises with some share of greater knowledge, of higher decency, of purer purpose. I pledge you, I pledge myself, to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help, not to win votes alone, but to win in this crusade to restore America to its own people. And there you have it.